everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. I hope you have enjoyed the series so far. I have not. I think it's been a good series, but it has been a very difficult series to preach. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. We have been dealing with the assault on the family in the kingdom of God. And so everything we have dealt with up to this point, and we'll continue to deal with over the next two weeks as we finish this out, is going to be focused on the family. Because the reality is, is that God always starts with the family and everything he does. He starts nowhere else. He starts with an individual, and he considers that to be a family, by the way. So if you are single, that does not all of a sudden disqualify you. The reality is, is that God first started the family with exclusively Adam. And then he moved on and brought Eve into the mix, and it was just Adam, Eve, and God, and God still considered it a family, and we really don't have any children showing up until after we leave the Garden of Eden. So families who are people who are single, or families who do not have children, or are unable to have children, or do not have children yet, are still families, and still fully part of the work of the kingdom of God in bringing his will on earth. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we go to the perfection of when God first created the family. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be food. Also to you, every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and so it was. Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. I enjoy when people have discussions on what the family ought to look like, and where they begin is post the Garden of Eden. If you have any understanding of the Bible, you understand that once we were exiled, kicked out, removed, excommunicated from the Garden of Eden, you understand that everything from that point onwards in history is imperfect. From that point on, sin has entered the world. In fact, it has entered the universe. The only reason that stars burn out when God created them to be eternal is because all of a sudden, with the entry of sin, decay has entered the universe. Science supports the reality that all things move towards chaos, or all things move towards an end. All things move towards brokenness, and yet that is not how it was supposed to be when God first created everything. God does not create anything that is imperfect. God does not create anything that is not good. The reality is, is that once Adam and Eve, rulers of the earth, decided to go their own route, their own way, in an anti-Christ fashion, they invited sin into the entire creation of God, and all things now are broken. 
So if you want to discuss the family, if you want to discuss the kingdom agenda God has, if you want to discuss everything that God intends to do within the family, or for the family, or by the family, or through the family, you cannot go to anywhere except the beginning in Genesis and take the point of perfection when there was no sin. Preacher, we do not live in a sinless world anymore. No, we do not. But that does not change God's design for the family, nor how he intends to bring about change, or how he intends to bring about his rule and his kingdom of heaven from on high down to here on earth. You can read everything in the Bible that talks about how the family is supposed to work, how everything is supposed to be, how everything is supposed to be intricately connected, and that is perfectly acceptable, and we ought to look at the whole Bible. But you cannot have an argument over what the family ought to look like unless it is built upon the foundation of how God originally intended it. And God did not decide that he would change how things work. God did not decide that he would change how things function. He simply took the point that now because sin had entered the world, his son would have to come and redeem everything. So if God intends to redeem everything, it means he intends to bring everything that is broken back to how it ought to be. Which means the church has no business having the conversation that anything other than a man and a woman being united in marriage is the only method by which God creates intimacy between one man and one woman. He does not approve nor does he accept when a man decides I'm attracted to a man. He does not approve nor accept that when a man decides that he is not a man but rather a woman. He does not accept when a woman decides that she is actually a man and decides to go through all of these things in her body to try and create and present herself as a man. He does not accept when a woman decides that she is attracted to a woman and thereby proceeds to that thing. Preacher, why are we talking about this? Every single person here as far as I know pretty much has an agreement on that. The reason we're talking about it is because the world is pushing it. And this is not a conversation about us going out there and going to war and trying to have every single legal system or every single political system or governmental system bend to our agenda or to our will or to our desire. Or even to come to a place where we force people from a political stance to bend to the design of God. That is not the conversation at all. The conversation is what does it look like before the throne of God so that when we come into contact with the world... We do not have an attitude of combat. We do not have an attitude of aggressiveness. We do not have an attitude of shame on them. Rather, we have an attitude of compassion, of mercy to look into the brokenness of their life, realize how sin has entered into it, contorted it so much, brought so much confusion that we, by the grace of God, can be an instrument of Him to draw them back into wholeness. We have a tendency in the church for the past however many years, to look at something that is anti-Christ and anti-God and anti-the way God wants things to work. And we have a tendency to go out into the world in an attitude of furiosity and let the world know that they are condemned and let the world know that they're doing something that is offensive to God. And all the while, the world rejects and rejects and rejects. Have you ever wondered why? Maybe it's because that's not how God wants it to work. 
I'm not saying we can't tell them the standard. I'm not saying that we lessen the standard. The reality is, is it's one man, one woman, not multiple men and one woman, not multiple women and one man, not multiple men and multiple women, not women and women, not men and men, not switching genders and deciding that you're this. It is one man, one woman. There's nothing wrong with giving them the standard. But many times when we have the discussion, we have a tendency to act more similar to the crusades that are such a blight on the history of Christianity. We look at people and tell them you either repent or die. Stop living that way or die. Now that might be true. Don't misunderstand. But we are not the executors of the judgment of God. The problem is, is that many times when we tell people the standard of God and tell them the consequence from rejecting God, we have a tendency to go one step further to a place we have no business being, and that is we become the executors of the judgment of God. God says he is judge, and at the end of all things, he will be the one to judge the living and the dead by the way they have lived and what they have done with his son Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So we have to figure out, God, how do I go into the world? Give them the truth of your standard. Give them the consequence of the reality of rejecting God, but never set foot into the judgment seat of God. There's a reason Jesus said, do not judge or you'll be judged with the same measure. He's not saying don't call sin, sin. He's not saying go ahead and let everything be okay. His stance is not, listen, just ignore sin in the world. Otherwise, he would not have so many parts in the Bible where we have Paul writing, if any of you sees a brother or a sister in sin, you who are spiritual, restore them. You know how you restore someone in sin? You let them know that what they're doing is wrong and you give them what God has designed. Those of you who are a watchman on the wall, going back to the book of Ezekiel, if a watchman on the wall sees disaster, coming and does not tell the people I will hold the watchman responsible for not warning people that disaster is coming. What's the point? Those of you who understand or are Christians or are in intimacy with God who understand that one day there is going to be a final judgment where mercy is no more, where repentance is off the table. If you who are a Christian understand that, refuse to tell your world that there is a hope beyond hopes. If you refuse to tell the world that in conjunction with that hope beyond hope, there is also calamity coming for those who reject God. If you refuse to do that, God says, I'll hold you responsible. So we do have a responsibility to tell people right from wrong. We do have a responsibility to have the conversation of what is godly and what is not godly. However, we have no business, no responsibility, no right to set foot into the judgment seat of God and try and exact it from people. Preacher, what do we do? We go back very simply to that wonderful verse that we all learn and memorize as a child. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. But the problem is, we stop memorizing there, and we miss the way that God wants to work it out with the next verse. For God did not, for God did not send his son to condemn. What's condemnation? It is a proclamation of final judgment, meaning there is no hope. When someone has been condemned, they are at the end of the opportunity of repentance. When someone has been condemned, they are at the finality of judgment, and God says, depart from me, for I never knew you. When God condemns, it is the end of all things. And he says, I did not send my son into the world to condemn the world. What's the point? Until he sets foot out of his throne of heaven and splits the eastern sky and comes back. Until Gabriel announces the return of Christ onto this earth to proclaim judgment, God is not ready to condemn the world. 
until you breathe your last breath, if you do not live to see the second coming of Christ, until breath leaves your body and then suddenly in death you now stand before the judgment throne of God, there is no condemnation on you until that moment. It does not mean you're living right. If you reject God, it does not mean everything you do is okay. If you reject his way of doing everything, it simply means God has deferred final condemnation. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. We have a tendency to miss that part, don't we? We see the brokenness, the sin, the awfulness of this entire world, and let's be clear, it is bad out there. And I don't know that if it's gotten worse or if it's about the same it's always been. All I do know is that because of how small the world has become, because of all the social media in the world, because every child in this world can now have access to the fullness of the internet without restrictions in their life, what I do know is the rate of sin has gotten faster. The sin might not be worse than it has ever been, but the rate of an acquisition and an enacting of sin has gotten faster because we can see the fullness of it being acted out. Anybody who can commit sin can now just go ahead and put it online and celebrate their sin, and it has permeated every facet of the culture. And yet God says, I'm not ready to condemn. So then what do we do? Well, today all we're going to deal with is sexuality. I told you a couple weeks ago, this week and next week are the two weeks that I'm asking you if you have kids and they're clingy and they want to be with you in the main service. I understand that. Just this week, there's no kids in here. Thank you. Next week, please again, no kids in here. Bribe them, threaten them, do whatever you have to to not let them be in here because next week we're talking about sex and what the church has done to ruin that entire concept between a man and a woman and why the world wants nothing to do with us anymore in that realm. But today we deal with sexuality specifically. What is sexuality? Sexuality is simply this. It is nothing more and it is nothing less than the expression of how I choose to express my attraction. Don't miss that. Sexuality is ultimately how I choose to express what I am attracted to. It is no more, no less. That is why you can have a man who is attracted to other men. We can agree that's not okay, that's not natural. Even the Bible says that's not natural. Or we can go with women. A woman who is attracted to another woman. And we can call them a Christian because they do not express that attraction. What do I mean by expression? I don't mean they bottle it up inside and don't tell anybody. I don't mean they just take it into themselves and never have a conversation with anybody. That's a great way to self-implode, by the way. If you've got something going on in you that you know is anti-God and you're fighting with it and struggling with it and you can't find a way to let it out so that you can discuss it, that is not an expression of something that is wrong. To go to a brother or a sister or a pastor in Christ and say to them, this is what's going on in me and if I don't get it out of me so I can begin discussing it, dissecting it, redeeming it, it's going to consume me. There are people who desperately do that all the time. They know it's wrong to be attracted to the same sex, and so they just consume it inside themselves, and really what they do is they end up living a bitter, broken life because there's no hope, no reprieve. The sinful part is the action upon it. The sinful part is not the attraction to the same sex. Don't miss that. 
You wonder how I know? That is not the sinful part. It might be the result of sin in the world. That's not the same thing as the sinful part. Because the only reason things look anti-God in the world is because the world is filled with sin. But we're talking about my actions, the things that I'm responsible for, the part that actually makes me responsible for God, for what I have done that is anti-Him. If a man is attracted to a man or a woman is attracted to a woman, if they do not act on it, where's the sin? problem is, most of us have made it sin simply because of the natural knee-jerk to be attracted. Let me explain something. Attraction is not a sin. The focus on it can be. Please don't get confused. I'm not saying that in order to avoid sin, you just have to keep everything in your mind. We know people who fantasize in their mind nonstop all day. It's every bit of sin. Jesus said anyone who looks on a woman lustfully in his heart has already committed adultery with her. We're not talking about attraction. There is a difference between the automatic knee-jerk response of this is something I find attractive and then leaning into the attraction, giving yourself over to it, even if I never physically act upon it, I have given my heart into that thing and allowed myself to explore it in the fullness of my mind. All right? So please do not get it confused. As long as I never do anything physically, it's fine. No, there can be a sin in the mind, but it is not the immediate knee-jerk reaction of I am attracted to this. You want to know how I know that's true? Some of us in here have a problem with lying. Some of us in here have a problem with gossip. Some of us in here have a problem with gluttony. I don't know what your sin is. I'm just going to list them all until we get them. Some of us in here have a problem with isolation. You didn't know that there was a sin of isolation. I'm not talking about being an introvert. I'm talking about cutting everybody off from you so that they never get an opportunity to be close to you. That is a sin unto God because he did not make us to be isolated from other people. He said it is not good for man to be alone. I will make someone comparable to him. And so on and on, when we cut people off from us, God says, I'm not okay with it. Let's go with this one. Some of us have a sin of anxiety. That's a hot topic, isn't it? Everybody, I'm just anxious all the time. I just don't. You understand that when the Bible says, do not be anxious. Book of Philippians, chapter 4, starting in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. The minute God says, do not, that thing becomes a sin. The minute God looks at it, and says, blanket in the Bible, do not sin. Now, I'm not talking about when there's a chemical imbalance. I'm not talking about when you legitimately need to work through things in a chemical. What I am talking about is some people live in such a place of anxiety that they will not permit God to orchestrate things in their life. Anxiety is an attitude of because I cannot know everything, I must then have control over everything and only I can control it and no one else. And I cannot afford to let go because the minute I let go, it means something's out of my control. And if something's out of my control, then that means I don't know what's going to happen. And if I don't know what's going to happen, then that means I'm... You understand, ultimately, anxiety is a result because you feel unsafe in the world. That's why he says be anxious for nothing but through prayer. He's not saying don't worry about things, by the way. There's things you ought to worry about. He's not saying be foolish and just ignore everything that comes your way. What he's saying is that these things should not be so consumptive in your mind that you're unable to rest in his grace. You're unable to lean into his mercy. You're unable to lean into his rest. Anxiety is as much a sin, by the way, as transsexuality. 
Bitterness and unforgiveness is as much of a sin as homosexuality. Lying or thinking murderous thoughts. Pretty sure I don't want to murder people. No, but you definitely look through your mind. God, just today, let him be hit by a bus. You know what? Don't even let them be hit by a bus. Just let the bus get close to them so they get scared. God, they hurt me. Don't take them out, God. Let them get to heaven. I'm not, saying don't, don't send, I'm not saying send them to hell, God, but let them feel pain. It's just as much a sin. The difference is, normally in the church, we've accepted all those sins. Oh, but God forbid someone come in here and they're attracted to the same gender. God forbid someone come in. And they think they're in the wrong gender and they need to transition genders. I'm not excusing it. I'm not okaying it. I'm saying that what we need to do is we need to elevate the sins that we have diminished. We need to elevate the sins that we have become okay with. We need to elevate the sin of anxiety. Elevate the sin of gluttony. Elevate the sin of lying. Elevate the sin of having to control everything. Elevate the sin of lust. Elevate the sin of anger. Elevate the sin of rage. Elevate the sin of unforgiveness onto the same precipice that we hold things like homosexuality because the world looks at us and says you're okay with your sin but not okay with my sin and when we do that what we have created is a savior who can only save the lesser sins but cannot redeem the greater sins we need to stop condemning people because they have a natural attraction to something and by natural i simply mean it is automatic i don't mean it's okay I don't mean it's godly. I mean it is the automatic response of the chemicals in their body to be attracted to the wrong thing. So what do we do? In the same way God had compassion on you for whatever sin that you can't seem to let go of. In the same way God has compassion on me for whatever sin is so easily besetting to me. In the same way that when I go to my friends when I am struggling through something and they lift me up. In the same way that you go to your friends who love God and love you and will not excuse the sin. But when you go to them because something is weighing on you so desperately that you know is anti-God. In the same way they show you compassion. And rather than condemning you or shaming you or making you feel like you're less than or you're such a bad Christian. Rather than doing that they put themselves under your arms and lift you up and say I'll walk with you through this. I'll help you get to the throne of God. I can't fix this for you, but I'm right here next to you, helping you get to where God wants you to get so that you can be free. In the same way, that ought to be what we do for a world that says, your sexuality is whatever you think. God made a man and a woman. That's it. He said, man woman. This is what I'll bring together in intimacy. That's the end of it. I heard a pastor one time say, I wish I could have been there in the garden when God was making this. Because maybe, God, couldn't you just make an in-between spot? Like something for the, for the people who, you know, they're attracted to the same gender. And I understand his point was to be compassionate, but he, the statement was anti-God. If he's going to make that statement, God, can't you just make an exception for homosexuality in here somewhere? Why not make a statement? God, can't you just make an exception for, for murder in this area? God, can't you make an exception for, for lying in this? God, can't you make an exception? We cannot make exceptions for the brokenness of the world. But keep something in mind. When you hated God, Jesus still died for you. When I looked at God and spat in his face, he still hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive JJ because he doesn't know what he's doing. 
The world is so messed up, so lost, so confused, and it is because for decades they've not had a church be the extension of the grace and the arms of Christ that says, we love you where you're at. Go and sin no more. Most of the time, what we look like is the Pharisees who dragged the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Can you imagine that? She had to have been so embarrassed, let alone the fact that she's already dealing with the cognitive dissonance in her mind. Because this is a Jewish woman. The only reason that they would bring this woman before Jesus, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, these are Jewish leaders, the only reason that they brought her before Jesus is because the Jewish law says she has to be stoned. So they can't just go and grab any Gentile, random woman who doesn't abide by the same rules. They ran, they found a Jewish woman caught in the act of adultery, and in the middle of her adultery, grabbed her by the arm. I don't even know if they gave her a blanket to cover herself so that she might not be infinitely embarrassed and threw her on the dirt before Christ and said, Jesus, she's supposed to die. He looks at them and says, who's got no sin? I'll let you throw a stone if you got no sin. I will let you throw as many stones as you want if there's nothing sinful about you. You want to know what most of us probably would have done? You want to know what I probably would have done? Because the sin of adultery and being caught in it is so much worse than anything I've done. You understand I'm being facetious right now, but I'm working through how most of us work in our minds. Because whatever that sin was is not, that is far worse than anything I've done. God, these are the sins I've committed. Those things aren't that bad. Most of us would have looked at our sin and said, well, that's not as bad as what she's done. So I'll just go ahead and get a stone and I'll start throwing. You want to know how I know? Because most of our conversation is surrounded with we need to get legislation passed that it's only a man and a woman. Most of our conversation is Facebook saying, don't bring this near my kid. And I get it. Don't bring it near my kid. You've got no business trying to teach my kid about sexuality. You want to know why? Because my kid's five. You've got no business teaching my kid about homosexuality or transsexuality. Guess what? You've got no business teaching my kid about any sexuality, even man and a woman. You've got no business teaching a five-year-old anything about that because God has not brought that out of them yet. He's created it, but he's left it in there as though it is a flower that at some point is to bloom into the fullness of manhood or womanhood. I'd be just as mad if some teacher was talking about her sexual escapades with the opposite gender to my kid as I would if it was the same gender. But we, we did, oh man, that's so much worse. And then we throw, and most of our conversation, Facebook, we've got to make sure we get this stopped being taught in school. Most of our conversation is we've got to make sure we pass legislation. Most of our conversation is I can't believe they would do this. I can, I'm more surprised that you're surprised. It's the world. You think they care about anything that God has to say? You think you cared about anything that God has to say until he reached down into the brokenness you were in and the brokenness I was in and said, I love you too much to leave you there? And now that we're on our lofty hills sitting on the shoulders of Christ in his glory, in his beauty, in his righteousness, in his strength, we look at the world and say, look at how messed up they are, Jesus. You want to throw down some lightning bolts? I don't know if the Sons of Thunder, when he nicknamed James and John, was a compliment. <laughs> Remember, those are the two that said, Lord, do you want us to call down lightning bolts on them in judgment? 
He says, no. He says, there will come a time to judge, but not today. How would we react if we knew someone was living a homosexual lifestyle and they wanted to give us a hug? How would I react if a gay man wanted to give me a hug because he's stuck in the bondage of sin, feeling no hope, but knows that he needs out, and then he hugs me. Well, I know he's attracted to me. Don't touch me. How would you feel if a woman who is a lesbian hugs you, and you're a woman, knowing that she is technically attracted to you, because that is the automatic reaction of the chemicals inside her body, to be attracted to the How? Well, don't touch me. How would you feel if someone who has gone through the transition from one gender to another, comes up and puts their arms around you sobbing because they are in need of a God of grace and they've mutilated their body so much they feel stuck in it and they don't know what to do because they feel stuck in the wrong gender trying to fix it to a different gender and now the conviction of God is touching their hearts saying, you've gone to the wrong gender, how do they get back to... We've given them no place of safety or comfort in the church as a whole because our conversation surrounds condemnation rather than redemption. And it might not even be this church that does it, but unfortunately the church en masse has done it, and so it becomes incumbent on us to go so far out into the highways, into the hedges, as Jesus said, and compel them to come in. You want to know what compels someone to come into the arms of God? His grace, His mercy, His compassion, His understanding that says, I see where you're at. I see how much it's ripping into you. I see how it's got you so confused and twisted around everything. And I understand you're trying to find which way is up, which way is down. In your life there is no north, there's no south. There's no east, there's no west. It's got you so twisted up in a hurricane and a tornado that you can't even seem to find any safety. But let me explain something. Come as you are to a God who died for you, who loves you as you are, and will put things back in place so you find out who you are. You understand that's all everybody does when they say I'm in the wrong gender? When they begin to express their sexuality in an antichrist way, you understand all they're doing is saying, I'm just trying to figure out who I am. Now listen very carefully to these next few phrases. What a godly thing to want to do to figure out who you are. What a godly thing to do to want to figure out who God made. The sin is that everybody's running to the wrong place to find it. And the church, rather than being so disgusted by the sin that we don't want to be around it, we might not condemn it, but man, it grosses us out, so I don't want to be around it. The church, rather than being disgusted by the sin or so offended by the sin that we dismiss the world that Jesus came to die for, You understand God wants us to go into their lives, not fix them, not even save them. Keep that in mind. You are not to save anybody. You are not to fix anybody. You are not to redeem anybody. That is God's place and God's place alone. Rather, what we do is we come to them with the grace, the mercy, the love, and the word, and the standard of God And whatever God begins to deal with, we say, how about we just put this part of your identity back in place? How about just this next part back in place? 
How about just this next part? Back in place. And what begins to happen over the course of time is that a shattered life suddenly begins to get pieced together again as God begins to redevelop and redeem a beautiful, stunning tapestry of a person that he created but that the world took advantage of. You and I are too complex that we would go in and fix anybody. The only responsibility you and I have present the truth, present the grace. If all you do is present the truth, then all you've told them is they're going to hell and they have no hope. If all you do is present the grace, then what you've told them is you're fine where you're at, nothing needs to change, and you've left them just as confused and just as messed up as when you met them. You need the truth because they need to see where up is up and down is down. You need the grace because you need them to understand, I'm not here to abuse you, I'm here to heal you. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to build you. But instead, we focus on truth. That's wrong. It is wrong. That's not okay. It's not okay. That is anti-God and anti-Christ. You are absolutely right. Where's the grace that lets them know it's safe to come to the throne of God? Now, what about the church? Let me explain one of the best things that the church has ever done that Satan snuck in, hijacked, and has turned it into one of the worst conversations happening today. United Methodist Church. If you've heard anything about them, you understand that they're getting ready to go through a split. The Bible term would be schism. If you want to sound smart, say that the United Methodist Church is going through a schism right now. All that means is a violent split. The reason they're having this conversation is because half of the church, and keep in mind, there are more Methodist churches in this nation than there are zip codes. That's how much of an impact John Wesley, when he started the Methodist church, had on this entire nation. There are more Methodist churches in this nation than there are zip codes, and they're about to split right down the middle because half of the church says it is okay for the pastor to be a homosexual or to be a lesbian or to be transsexual. It is okay for them to be that and live like that. The other half of the church says it's not okay. The pastor cannot do that. The pastor cannot be like that. That is not something the pastor can do. Now the question is, who's right? And before you answer, because I know most of us in here, and I would have the natural knee-jerk answer as well, and say that this side that wants to go ahead and let the homosexual or the lesbian or the LGBTQAI plus whatever letter they're on now, whatever they're on, they can be a pastor. Knee-jerk reaction? They're wrong. Knee-jerk reaction, they're right. Remember the first conversation about how we had an elevation of sin? Out of curiosity, let's just stroke my ego for just a little bit. Am I perfect? Why did you laugh? I'm going to give you another chance. I know the laughter was over here. That's a little hurtful. I didn't think I was so sinful that it merited mockery. Am I perfect? No. Okay, thank you. I don't know who is enjoying making fun of me, but I hope that you stub your toe. And right... (laughs) I'm, I'm not perfect. Now, does that mean that I go around doing every sinful thing that I can think of that comes my way, that is a natural reaction? Keep something in mind. Your natural attraction to sin is not sin. 
because it's an automatic response of your flesh to want to do what is anti-God. Ever since we were born into this sinful world, that is the automatic response of your flesh to want to do something that is anti-God. That's why God never said he redeemed the flesh yet. So that you know there's a reason you're still fighting and struggling and dealing with sin. It's got nothing to do with you're not a good enough Christian. It has everything to do with that you still live in a sinful and a broken world. Now, coming back, am I a perfect pastor? Absolutely not. Am I even a perfect person? Far from it. So here's the question. Can I have my sin and be a pastor? You're either firing me now or you're letting me know I still have a job right now. I'm not perfect. You know, I appreciate that, Dave. Someone's going to let me keep a job. I'll see you next week. I'm not perfect. There is sin in my life that God is still dealing with and working with me on, walking me through, piecing me together, still putting together the fullness of my identity and who I am. You want to know how I know? Because I'm not at the glorification yet of heaven. So the question is, can I have my sin and be a pastor? And if you said no, I guess I'll go preach somewhere else since I don't have a job anymore. Now, here's the thing. Here's how it got messed up. Because right now, some of you are either confused on where you stand on the issue or you're angry at me for saying yes. That's really the only two places you are. The rest of you who aren't one of those two camps are sitting there thinking to yourselves, what's the twist that you're going to bring up, you conniving little gnome? (laughs) Here's the twist. Here's how we got to this schism that's so awful. There was a pastor in a Methodist church, attracted to men, in and of himself, attracted to men. No matter how hard he fought it, no matter how much he tried to work through it, he was still attracted to men. Nothing about him. He prayed and prayed. He fasted. He went through everything he could think to try and stop being attracted to men, and he could not stop being attracted to men. Never did anything about it. When he would have thoughts about it, he would fight with them. He would do everything he could to live out the verse that says bringing every thought into the captivity and obedience of Jesus Christ. And it would ravage his mind the way he would fight back and forth. He knew it was sin to go ahead and act on it. He knew it was sin to mentally give into it. Again, mentally giving in is not the same thing as having a thought. He knew it was sin to mentally give into it. And he fought back and forth. And when he was so exhausted, he went to his board and said, I am attracted to men. I've not done anything with it. I fight it. I hate that this is the sin I'm fighting with. I have not given into it. I am so sorry, but I have to resign as your pastor. You want to know what that board looked at him and said? Don't resign. Not only have you refused to give into the sin that is drawing you, but you've confessed the sin to us so that we can surround you and lift you up so that we can now be a part of your healing and your walk with Christ. They said, don't, don't resign. And the Methodist church as a whole, because they had to get it approved, they've got, there's a little bit more hierarchy in the Methodist church than other, other denominations, and the Methodist church as a whole voted on it and said, yeah, he can keep his job. He's not acting on it. He's not advocating it. He's not preaching this is a good thing. He's not preaching it's okay. He believes that it is not how God designed him, and yet he's in a fallen world fighting with it. He gets to keep his job because that's a man who is trying to honor God the best he can by the guidance of the Holy Spirit and by being accountable to those who are closest to him, let him keep his pastorate and then Satan comes sneaking in and says well if he gets to keep it 
why can't that person over there who's living it out keep their pastorate? You see what he does? Satan loves to hijack things that God makes so beautiful. You see the picture of a broken man who's trying to do his best to pastor a broken people and honor God by feeding the sheep of his pasture, by tending to the flock that God has entrusted him, and showing his brokenness to those that he can trust and say, I don't know what to do except for resign. And then the people who around him were spiritual enough to discern the spirit and realize, well, you're not giving into it. You're not preaching it's a good. You're not celebrating it. We think you need to stay here, and now we'll be with you in this. And then Satan walks his way in to a denomination that was not paying quite close enough attention, and please do not misunderstand, we are probably going to be guilty of just as many times where we don't pay attention in our lives or as a denomination, but he sneaks in through an open door and bastardizes the grace of God into do whatever you want. The conversation the Methodist Church is having, that's a schism right now, it's the wrong conversation. They're having a conversation about if this is who you are, you can't be a pastor. You have to be this. To, rather, they ought to be having the conversation of, here's the standard. How do we minister to these people who are struggling, who are fighting, dealing with this? Let me explain one more thing about sexuality. Remember, it is how you choose to express your attraction. That's why when God says the sexually immoral, many times we think, oh, the homosexuals and the transsexuals, God is not okay with that. Keep something in mind, and we're going to talk about this next week. I'm going to use some generic stereotypes. Please do not be offended if this is how it works in your marriage. Most of the time, women will withhold or manipulate with sex. Most of the time, men will demand or force themselves on their wives. Those are just as sexually immoral as homosexuality. To purposely withhold or to use sex as a transactional thing to manipulate the person into doing what you want is sin. To force yourself on your wife or your spouse, if it's the wife forcing on the husband, to force yourself on the spouse is just as sexually immoral. Why? Because sex in and of itself, is meant to be a sacrificial giving of yourself. There is nothing about sex that is meant to be focused on you. That is the byproduct. The enjoyment that a person gets in and of themselves from sex is the byproduct of them giving themselves to the spouse in that act that is between a man and a woman exclusively in the marriage bed. But what we have done is we've said, well, inside of marriage, do whatever you want. And outside of marriage, nothing. We've completely missed it and say, well, express yourself however you want inside the marriage. And outside the marriage, you get, and is it any wonder everybody's so confused? Why? Because they see husbands who are abusive, forcing themselves on their wives, thinking to themselves, well, just because they're married, how does that make it okay? I guess I can go ahead and be attracted to men and do whatever I want. Or they see women who are manipulating their husbands, talking and celebrating, here's how I got my husband to do what I want. I just withheld it until he gave me what I want. And then I went ahead and gave him what he wanted because he's just an animal. And they think to themselves, well, if that's what they're doing to their husbands, then I can just go ahead and do whatever I want. Goodness, at least I'm attracted to someone who has the same thought process as me, as a woman to a woman or man to... See why nobody wants to talk to the church anymore? I'm not saying we do it here. If you do, it's a tough avenue to walk to figure out the balance of it all. But there's a reason most of the world does not feel safe inside the church. 
the expression, how I choose to express my attraction. I'll leave you with two stories, both of them true. Neither of these stories am I attached to. I wish I was. I wish I knew these people in real life. I think it would be a fantastic conversation to have had with them. The first one is this. There was a pastor who was having a homosexual relationship. Had a wife, three kids. Don't ask me how it works. I don't know. Having a homosexual relationship, fighting to get out of it. Goes to a pastor who has a skill at dealing with with sexual bondage, all right? Every pastor has different gifts. This pastor that he went to had a skill and a gift for walking people through the sexual brokenness of their lives so that they could be healed and fulfilled through the person of Christ in how God designed it. Has a conversation with them. The pastor says, well, you're not a homosexual. Everything that I've asked you about, everything here, it doesn't fit with that. And so they started digging into his past a little bit. They come to find out that the man, when he was young, his parents got divorced. Now, that wasn't uncommon knowledge. Everybody knew it. He had given it as part of his testimony. Nothing new or special there. What wasn't known is that during the time surrounding the divorce, when as a little boy, somewhere between the ages of six and nine, a divorce causes a lot of confusion in kids. Even if you tell them it's not their fault, they still can't understand why their entire world is being torn apart. And so in the midst of that, he had a friend down the street, a little bit older of a boy. Now that boy that he was friends with never took sexual advantage, never molested him. It was a good relationship. That's the thing. The boy that was down the street was just someone there who was a little bit older. And this pastor, when he was a little boy, as his parents were going through a divorce, went to that friend of his and would just cry and tell him what he was going through. And his friend never took advantage of him. This is not a conversation of him being molested or a horrible thing happened. It was a wonderful thing that he had someone to go to, that he could open up to, even if there was not everything there to piece him back together. At least he was able to deal with his pain in some fashion in a healthy way. Now you fast forward to when he's an adult. He's never dealt with the brokenness of what happened in the divorce in its fullness. And so now whenever he gets overwhelmingly stressed, in a situation, he goes looking for a slightly older man. You see how Satan just walks in and takes something that is so wonderful and beautiful and manipulates it, bastardizes it, molests it, and throws it into... The man couldn't figure out why is it I'm running to just men who are older than me every time I'm in a world of stress. Because when you were younger, in the most stressful time in your life, you had a good relationship with an older boy who was able to help you work through this. And now, even though you don't understand why, Satan has walked in and now he's drawing you to older men who are abusing your stress for their own... We would call that man a homosexual. You want to know what's happening? Satan is running rampant inside of his attraction that is not natural, using the natural response to sin and using it to manipulate him and throw him into something that he can't get out. Let me give you the other one. There's a man who's attracted to a man and a woman who's attracted to women. Yay, lesbian. They decided to get married. They have two kids, biological. She's the mom, he's the dad. You get how it works. He's still attracted to men. She's still attracted to women. You want to know what happened? 
They went to God and said, God, this isn't what you want for me to be attracted to the same sex. And I can't act on this, and I don't know what to do. So all I can do, God, is pray that somehow you would bring me into a marriage that is both holy and understanding of the brokenness in my life. Because, God, I want to have a family, and I want kids, but me being attracted to the same gender is not going to work. At the same time he's praying that, there's a woman going through the exact same thing. God, I want a family. I want to give birth to kids. But that doesn't work when you're attracted to the same gender. And even if it did work, God, that's not how you design things. So God, I need you to provide a family where I can have the kids and I can be in a love with this man, even though I won't be attracted to him and maybe he'll be attracted to me. But God, and then God brings them together and says, here, you might not be attracted to each other, but that's just your sin talking. I'll give you the family that you are praying for despite everything in life that says it shouldn't work. What's the difference when it comes to the church and the world when dealing with the sexuality that is broken versus the sexuality that God is restoring and redeeming. You want to know what the difference is? The world identifies with their sexuality. The church identifies with Christ. At least that's how it's supposed to work. The church identifies with Christ. I have no problem with a man or a woman who struggles with the idea or the sin that they are attracted to the same gender. I have zero issues with a man or a woman who wrestles and struggles with the idea that they are in the wrong body. That is just how sin has decided to enter into their lives. It is no different than the way that sin has entered into our lives. That's why when someone says to me they were born this way, I agree with them. You were born into sin, but there's a Savior who wants to give you more than the sin you were born with. I have no problem with that. But I do not approve of when Christians identify themselves by the sin. When a Christian says, I am a homosexual, I am gay, I am a lesbian, I am a transsexual, you've gone too far because you've chosen to identify yourself with the broken sin rather than with the ruling Savior. Let the world identify themselves with their sin. I am gay. I am lesbian. I am a trans. That is, let them go ahead and do what they want. But the minute they enter into this church, you want to know what we do when we look at them? You're not gay. You might be attracted to men, but you're not gay. You're not a lesbian. You might be attracted to women, but you're not a lesbian. You're not transsexual. You might feel like you're in the wrong gender, but you're not in the wrong gender. We identify them with the Savior who has the perfection of their identity, and we piece them back together by the grace of God. The problem is what we have done in the church is we have rejected the people rather than the sin. And in the world, they have decided to identify with the sin rather than the Savior, and it has worked its way into the church where now you have churches being okay with people identifying with the sin rather than the Savior. Has anybody in here ever lied? Has anybody in here ever been angry? Has anybody ever in here been so angry that you wished pain on someone else? You're a murderer. You're a liar. And yet, guess what? None of us would call each other a murderer or a liar. We'd say, you struggle. You have a sin of lying. You have a sin of murder and hate. You have a sin of unforgiveness. But we would not identify them because Paul says to a church that was literally sleeping with their parents and celebrating at the church, they would have testimony time. And the stepson would come up there and said, I slept with my stepmom. And everybody would stand up and start clapping and say, praise Jesus. And Paul is writing to them and saying, don't do this. And in the same breath, he says, don't do that. He says, you used to be an adulterer. You used to be a womanizer. Paul, what do you mean used to be? They're doing it right now. No, 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 you don't understand. Now that they're in Christ, it's child of God. Stop doing the sin. 
Don't do the sin, but don't be identified with it either if it's still occurring. Because the minute you identify it is when you accept it. The minute you identify with Christ is when you cannot accept anything that does not look like him. And so that is why a man attracted to a man can choose to identify with Christ and now as a result be just as saved, sanctified, redeemed as any man or woman in a homosexual relationship. But we've got to stop either demonizing a man, woman, boy, girl who struggles with this, or we have to stop accepting it as okay we've got to walk that line that says there's more for you the most successful rehab facility is in the state of New Jersey go figure I assume it's because they're rude to their patients it's a Christian based facility most people when they get sober they get sober six months later they're back in it. You want to know why AA doesn't work so well anymore? Because they say all you are is a recovering alcoholic. You'll always be an alcoholic. You'll never be anything but an alcoholic. This rehab center in New Jersey, doesn't matter how long you've been addicted to something, how bad the addiction was, how bad the withdrawals are, the day you walk in, the first thing they say to you is, you are not an addict. The first thing they do is remove the identification that that person has with the sin. They're honest with them. You have an addiction, but you are not an addict. You have an addiction that's breaking you, but you are not a... You're not a homosexual. You're not a transsexual. You're not an animal if all you can do is think about sex. You're, you are a child of God on high who does not look at you with a sneer or with a repulsed face, but rather looks at you as his son and his daughter, the one that every time the angels circle around the throne and begin to sing holy, 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 God puts them on pause just for a moment to say, have you seen my son today, what he did? Have you seen my daughter today, what she's done? Yeah, God, I just watched her chew someone out in traffic. Yeah, but then did you see her two seconds later when she repented to me and thought she was sorry? Because God, God your son literally just went toe-to-toe -to -toe with someone yelling at them. Yeah, but did you see him when he came back to me and repented and was willing to go and repent to that person that he was awful to and restored? He loves to brag on you. God, this is the person who just went on a binge drinking weekend and still hasn't woken up out of a dead sleep. And God looks at them and says, yeah, but do you know that they're my son and I love them? And when they wake up, I'm going to be right there to cradle them and nurse them back to health and walk them back into health so that they can look more and more like me. There's nothing about you that good God looks on in a repulsed fashion. Nothing about you. You want to know why? Because the only way he identifies you is with his son. The world needs to know there's something else they can look like. They don't need to hear they're wrong. They know they're wrong. They don't need to hear they're confused. They know they're confused. That's why they're so desperate to find something that makes them feel whole inside. What they need is someone with the strength and the compassion in the same breath to steady their broken lives and point them at a Savior who can redeem and heal them. Keep something in mind. We're sexual beings. That's how we were made. Be fruitful multiply. It doesn't happen outside of sex.
Unfortunately, Satan decided I'm going to worm my way in. And I'm going to tear this thing to pieces. I'm going to tear it up so bad that the world does whatever they want and lives in confusion. I'm going to rip it apart so bad that the church becomes scared to even talk about the subject. And I'll leave the world broken in the very first command that God gave them. Make no mistake, sexuality and the ruining of it is an assault on the family because it is so integral to every person. Even if they're single, it is so integral because sexuality is more than sex. It is the expression of my identity. And the only way to have a proper expression of my identity is within the boundaries that God sets for my life. That's why this makes so much importance to single people. That's why it's so important even if someone isn't able to have kids because it doesn't all of a sudden become valueless even if you can't have kids or if you don't have kids or if someone decides that they're a eunuch. Jesus literally says, I have a special place in heaven for people who have decided to be eunuchs with their lives and devote it solely to me. And yet sexuality still permeates every part of their being because it is the expression of identity. The world uses it as an expression of attraction. The church is supposed to use it as an expression of identity and who God has made us. And in that, there is freedom, there is stability, and there is safety, even when we mess it up. Why? Because at least we still have a place to go back to that shows us where it's right, where it's wrong, where it's stable, where it's glorified, and what doesn't belong inside the boundaries.